Welcome to Motos and Friends, Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast brought to you by the spectacular Yamaha R7, a new generation of super sport machine. My name is Arthur Coldwells. The much-hyped Kawasaki Ninja ZX4RR is a small bike that is claimed to punch well above its weight. Senior editor Nick DeSena rode the punchy little ninja around Thunder Hill and gives us his impressions of whether this new lightweight will gain any traction in the market. Associate editor Jonathan Handler brings us our snippet this week and he talks about his new BMW Motorrad denim jacket. This jacket is listed at an eye-watering $559, so I was curious to hear Jonathan's take on the jacket's quality and design. In our second feature segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Wes Robinson. Wes has spent a lifetime buying, riding, restoring and racing mainly American V-twin motorcycles. His career includes time spent as an AMA racing tech. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF R7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZF R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or See the YZF R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. It's a pretty interesting motorcycle in the fact that no manufacturer has made an inline four cylinder motorcycle of this displacement in quite a few years. And if you wind back the clocks a little bit in the 80s and early 90s and into the mid 90s and and some markets, even into the late 90s, some of these bikes thrived and survived all the way through there and created a, a really sort of hot market of sub 400 cc uh, fully fared sport bikes. And these things weren't your average sort of beginner sport bike. You know, how we'd view something like a Ninja 400 or a CBR equivalent or say a, a Yamaha R3 you know, things of that ilk, what we're talking about from the eighties would have been, you know, fully, fully fledged sport bikes with all of the highest technology of the day, you know, just miniaturized, we'll say, Um, you know, so these things had aluminum twin spar frames, you know, fully adjustable suspension. And then of course the high revving, just absolute screamer inline four engines that were just compact and small. And, Really, that's what a lot of lightweight uh, sport bike enthusiasts have been clamoring for for years and years at this point. Um, and there's a, a lot of reasons why manufacturers have moved away from producing low displacement inline four cylinder powered motorcycles, mostly because of you know scales of economy and things like that. But yeah, this is the first time that the that that N um, an inline four you know, powered sport bike of this size has come to market in quite a few years. So pretty exciting stuff here. And as someone that does 
race and track a, a lightweight bike. This is, you know, pretty close to home with my personal interests as far as uh, sport riding goes anyway. So yeah, pretty soaked about it. Sure. Why, why do you think there is so much interest in this small displacement bike? Is it, is it particularly fast for what it is or is it just because it's light and, and great handling? I mean, what is it that makes the difference between something like this and say an R3 or a KTM 390? I mean, uh, just the engine, really. Uh, it all comes down to the engine. It, you know, the fact that in a true inline four uh, cylinder screamer hasn't been produced in so long makes it something of a novelty, uh, especially in market where <clears throat> this bike doesn't really have any true competitors. There is one uh, motorcycle from a Chinese company called Cove, uh, K-O-V-E, that uses a, an inline four cylinder motorcycle or engine with a similar displacement but it's kind of an outlier and we haven't tested it and i don't anticipate testing anytime soon um but by and large you know it really just comes down to the engine because when you put an inline four cylinder engine in a small chassis that kind of combines that that sort of uh i will say the the, the two things that that sport riders are really going after. You want power that you can actually use and wrap your head around in a chassis that isn't necessarily stressed or flexed from that power. So you have something that can handle it in both regards. You have the rider that can handle the power and then a chassis that can easily handle the power in a lightweight package. And that's what makes something like a, a modern version of these old inline four-cylinder motorcycles really appealing you know back then those things were insanely light um you know motorcycles in the 80s and 90s had a lot less equipment and they could be a lot lighter um and they still had pretty respectable performance but you know getting to the core of the question i, I would say the the appeal of this bike is that it's an inline four-cylinder screamer shoved in a lightweight small compact chassis and that really bodes well if you're going after you know your your you're going after handling and you know things of that nature because top speed out of anything in the 400 class is not going to be, you know, it's it's headlining appeal. We'll say, I think at the uh, the track day we were at at Thunder Hill Raceway because we just rode it on the racetrack. Top speed I saw was either 121, 123, something like that. Um, which is funny because the moment, moment I started recording video, I was actually sat up out of the bubble a little bit more and creating more wind resistance, which knocked down my top speed by at least three or four points, which is kind of funny. But um, to be expected, I would say. Yeah, it's it's you know it just doesn't have the the gumption that a six hundred or or a one thousand would be. All right, well that's that sort of begs the question then. What, what sort of horsepower does it put out and how does the motor feel? Yeah, so Kawasaki North America, per their, their sort of uh, standard playbook, they don't report performance numbers. They typically don't. They might release some torque figures or when you're talking stuff like the H2, then they'll mention it. But by and large, Kawasaki and other Japanese uh, subsidiaries in the United States don't report performance numbers. However, 
This bike has been a hot button issue for enthusiast customers and information was leaked out pretty early that it was going to have a bit of a hiccup in terms of noise emissions compliance. And Kawasaki was quite forthcoming with that information. So in the United States, you're seeing something like the, you know, the, the area of about 58 horsepower um, and about, you know, 20, 28 foot-pounds of torque, right? And truth be told, that's not exactly far off from a parallel twin-powered Ninja 400 that has a full system on it and maybe a couple other goodies. But yeah, I think my little race bike makes around that anyway. Um, in Europe, it's significantly higher and other markets where the bike is able to, you know, just use its standard tune. Um, you know, in North America, the, the noise compliance issue has come up for quite a few bikes. Uh, you know, most recently we tested the M1000R from BMW. That thing's hampered pretty good. You know, Prelia Tuono's uh, 660s and RS660s definitely have a, a bit of bit of a slump due to that same reasoning and a lot of other bikes coming out now you know struggle to deal with it uh this one is same thing and kawasaki's logic behind it is look we can either not bring the bike in and not give these customers what they've been asking for or we can bring it in and realize that this is a bike that appeals to an enthusiast grade customer and that type of customer is invariably either going to convert sync to racetrack use and put a pipe on it and reflash it and that problem is not an issue or they're going to modify it in some way either way this appeals to someone that is comfortable doing those things and is expected to do them so it's sort of a moot point for us um am i disappointed that it still has those issues yes i'm disappointed when any of those bikes have have issues with emission stuff but at the end of the day i think an owner is going to to fix that issue. Now we've gotten that homework out of the way. Right. And there are plenty of things to talk about in terms of its performance. Anyway, this thing really is just a true blue old school screamer. I mean, it's got that short stroke design things meant to just rev out high and, and fast. And that's sort of its whole benefit, you know, of a short stroke design engine. Um, so it feels exactly like that. It's insanely smooth. You know, it's, it's, it just revs out and pulls, 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 pulls all the way up um, until you get to that 11.5 uh, RPM mark. And then the power starts waning. And that's where you see that emissions thing come into play. So you were riding a bike on track, but with the stock um, power curve, the stock um, ECU, the stock flash on there. They did yeah. not reflash it to Euro spec because you were on the track. No. Okay. So the fact that you're sort of quite impressed by it and the fact that it, it, it sort of did well means that there's a whole lot more to come if, you know, if somebody does actually buy this for track use. Yeah. I mean, we've, I've, I've never actually tested a bike with a manufacturer that's been reflashed, but. Um... Right. Right. I just, I just wondered because the, it, it, it clearly is quite an issue. And as you say, they're expecting people to really use these on the track and, and convert them for track use. I wondered if they had a tracked version there um, or if you're just simply talking about the, the absolutely stock one as street legal. Yeah, no, like we, we only rode the 
you know, box stock bike. I mean, even down to the tires. Okay. Um, but yeah, the, the engine just has that classic revy personality. It wants to rev up fast and it has all of the ability to do that as well. I mean, you have lightweight okay. forged pistons, uh, you know, cast aluminum pistons. It does save a little bit of money there if you were to compare it to like a ZX-10R, which uses forged. Okay, whatever. It has a lightweight flywheel. And really, it just all of that stuff that we could apply to the ZX-6R design or the ZX-10R design, basically any high-performance inline-four engine, it's sharing most, if not all, of its DNA in some capacity with those, those bigger brothers. Um, you know, it just helps it rev out to that stratospheric, you know, RPM, which is uh, 15,150. For a bike of this size, that little engine just, mm -hmm. um, it's super fun to just sort of whack the throttle on and understand that you're, you're going to be able to wrangle and maintain and control all of that power underneath you and just let the thing rip out to, you know, its red line. Now, as I mentioned before, in the US version or North American version, you are going to have that power curbing at 11.5. So, you know, there are some ways to fix that. Uh, Chuck Graves and uh, a couple of his colleagues from Graves Motorsports were on hands to just showcase, you know, some potential with a bike. So they had a full super sport build ready to go with race fairings and, you know, rear sets and a full system a full exhaust system. So they had everything there. Um, and they're, you know, they also had a, a slightly more streetable version on display as well with a cat back uh, slip on pipe. And, you know, if you were to go with a cat back system, we actually included this in our story, uh, you'd achieve cat back plus the tune. So you'd have to reflash the ECU. You'd get something on the order of uh, just a sniff above 75 horsepower, so probably about 76 horsepower, and uh, you know about 30 foot-pounds of torque. And any yeah. of the numbers That's that I've mentioned here are measured at the wheel. So wow. that's different from when you read manufacturer specs and they say, oh, the engine makes this amount of horsepower and this amount of torque. That is almost always measured at the crank, which does not uh, consider a parasitic power loss through the, the drivetrain and to the rear wheel. You can expect something from, you know, either a seven to up to 15% of loss between the crank and the rear wheel, because you have the chain sprockets, you know, all of that good stuff. Um, so anything that I've mentioned here in this podcast is directly referencing information provided by uh, Graves Motorsports. Um, so the, the previous horsepower figures, uh, those were measured at the wheel and then, uh, the stuff with the, the slip on and the flash though, that's measured at the wheel as well. Now, uh, the engine itself is super fun, you know, despite the tune, it's still got the personality of an old school, you know, inline four screamer. And the joy of it is just being able to just get deep into the revs and, and ring it out and not have any sort of fear that we would when we're riding something like a ZX-10R, which definitely commands a fair bit of respect. You're dealing with a lot more horsepower <laughs> in that, that regard. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, this this is a great tool for, for riders that are experienced, you know, experienced track riders, experienced club racers, et cetera, et cetera, 
you know, on that far end of the skill spectrum, they can come down to something like this and just have an absolute ball the entire day. You know, the tire conservation is going to be much better. Um, they're going to have just boatloads of confidence. And then if we kind of take it to the other end of the spectrum, you know, I wouldn't say that this motorcycle is suitable for a true beginner. And that's not based on its uh, performance abilities necessarily. I would say the price point is probably not uh, indicative of what I would recommend for a beginner. But someone that is moving up from, say, a Ninja 400 or, you know, an R3 or an RC390 or something in that ballpark, and then moving up to, you know, something that that helps bridge the gap between a true inline four powered uh, or inline four cylinder powered 600, this really slots itself between the two. Um, so you're going to be picking up a lot of those intermediate riders as well. So I think this thing plays to a, a, a couple different demographics nicely. Um, but again, you know, the engine is super solid. It's ex insanely fun. And, and I wish I could try it out, you know, in its full fat version, we'll say. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, kind of moving along with that, you have a six-speed gearbox. And some of the niceties that come with this price point are things like an up-down quick shifter. Um, Okay. In, in most cases, it works really nicely. It's, you know, the, the upshift function is very smooth, predictable, nice and solid. Um, the downshift function, there's there could be just like a bit of algorithmic smoothing. It really has nothing to do with the gearbox itself, in my opinion. The gearbox and the clutch actuation, that's all very smooth, very clean, very positive shifting, uh, really good engagement as well. It's probably not up to the, you know, mechanical refinement of say a ZX-10R or, you know, ZX-6R, but it's definitely far more in that direction than something that you find in any of the parallel twin powered bikes like the Ninja 400 or RC390, which to be perfectly blunt, have some, you know, shifting issues related to the clutch and, you know, things of that nature. If you talk to anyone that races a Ninja 400, they'll, kind of say that that gearbox was not designed to be ridden that way. And, you know, same thing for the RC390 in stock, uh, in stock trim. So you do need to upgrade a couple of things here. Um, right. But with, when talking about the ZX4R, no, the thing's super solid. I, it really is that little kind of, uh, you know, switch. it's got that Swiss watchiness that I think a good inline four character tends to have for me where it just feels super tight and controlled and well-manufactured. And that's definitely evident here. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've sort of hammered the engine enough on its North American tune. It right. is what it is. And, you know, people are probably going to fix it. But at the end of the day, the thing still rips and it's insanely fun to use. So, you know, aspects like its incredible smoothness, uh, the fact that the power delivery is very linear, that all comes through. Uh, you know, regardless. And it's just a super fun bike in that regard. Okay. So um, are there any, I mean, is there electronics on it? I mean, things like traction control and... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is, that, is that fairly basic level stuff or is it fairly sophisticated, bearing in mind it may well be a track bike? Uh, no, I mean, for 
for the bike and what it is and its power output, you know, this, this sort of gets into, you know, where this bike actually fits overall, but it's a kind of longer conversation. Um, you know, the electronics, it just uses basic wheel speed sensors, engine speed, things like that. So preset variables, it does not use an IMU. So we don't have cornering ABS or lean angle sensitive traction control. Okay. However, it does have ABS and it does have traction control, uh, three levels of which. You can also disable it if you want to. Um, you know, because it is a fully modern motorcycle from Kawasaki, they've gone with a ride-by-wire throttle, which has facilitated three different ride modes. And to be clear, the ride modes don't actually change a throttle map per se. What they do is really corral your, your TC modes. Uh, so you have sport, road, and rain. <clears throat> then you have a customizable rider mode where you can disable the TC completely and also put the, the engine into a full power or low power mode. Um, and rain mode actually puts it into a low power mode. Um, and that all that's all pretty self-explanatory, so I won't delve into it. But the TC itself, despite being a rudimentary system, if we're just going to be blunt about it, it works nicely. And I think that really has to do more with the fact that we're dealing with lower horsepower figures. So oh. the way that it cuts and intervenes is not as aggressive as what you'd experience on, say, a 6R or a 10R. Right. Um, it's interesting because a few of my colleagues and I were riding around and we put it in the different modes. And just the way that it comes in, I mean, it's incredibly obvious when it's in rain mode. The thing is just very <laughs> reluctant. To, Sluggish, yeah. Yeah, and, and that makes sense. That's cool. what rain mode is supposed to do. It's supposed cool. to be, you know, very heavy-handed in its, in its, uh, you know, restrictions because you're supposed to be riding well in the rain. Right. Okay, great. And then if you pop it in a round mode, that opens it up a little bit. But, and then if you go into sport, it's kind of funny because, you know, I barely saw the TC light flash, and there is a little bit of a difference between sport and just turning it off. That just kind of opens the bike up to that, that extra little sniff but um you know it's interesting because the the way that the tc comes in and out and how it feeds on the power it's just it really it gives you that rubber banding sensation where it's not like when tc really hard cuts uh you know and especially older systems you can feel it doing this kind of like kah, 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 kah thing and um that's not happening here um mm. Okay. But, you know, it, it is a, a value for, for street riders, definitely, um, those that will be riding it in variable conditions. And for track riders, you know, popping it into sport mode, I think pretty much any skill level is going to be pretty happy. And those that are running stickier tires or just pushing a faster pace and want to be, you know, really focused on track riding, you have the ability to turn it off. So there you go. Um, on the ABS front, you have single channel ABS it's not uh, defeatable. So you can't turn it off from the dash. However, there is this thing called a fuse box that's located <laughs> conveniently. Right. Um, can't really explain it where and how, but you, you can sort of access this thing called a fuse box and, and apparently you can pull a fuse to disable the ABS. Now I'm not... <laughs> I'm not sure if you guys can tell, but I'm intentionally being vague about this for legal purposes. But <laughs> it, yeah, it, it yeah, that's how you used to have to disable ABS and 
you can do it here too. And it doesn't throw any codes or anything. So whatever. That said, again, basic ABS system. Um, and this is something else that a couple of my colleagues and I were discussing. Um, you know, there, there are some areas of Thunder Hill that definitely triggered ABS. The thing is, I never really felt the need to pull, pull the fuse and, and, and disable it completely. Um, right. We were running a, you know, a pretty good pace, I would say. There's some guys that are faster than me, some guys are slower than me. And it really just came down to how you're braking. I think if we were running race tires and things like that, and and we were able to brake later and brake harder and just run that extra step, then ABS would become an issue. But at this pace, not so much. You know, going into what is that turn? One, two, three, four, five, the sort of the, the fake corkscrew sort of right. thing thunder hill and you're going up the hill for whatever reason abs would would tend to trigger there uh and it's just a little bit of fluffing in the in the the brake lever i wouldn't say that it, it just made me freewheel uh insanely or anything like that right so i didn't have any issues like that um and then there's one other one other turn where i could get it to do it pretty consistently um and I really just think it has to do with creating a speed differential between the front and the rear. So you're just kind of lifting the rear end and getting it light and making the rear wheel slip a bit. Um, so, yeah, but overall it has a, you know, a, a very basic electronics package, but an electronics package nonetheless. So <clears throat> that's something right. that we can definitely recognize here. All right. And see some value in. Sure, sure. How was the uh, how's the suspension? Of course, that's pretty vital on a on a potential track weapon. Yeah, yeah. So up front, you have a Showa fork. It is the uh, what is it? SFF hyphen BP single function something something nomenclature. I think I'm not going to remember ever. Um. Anyway, so yeah, you have the uh, an inverted. 37 millimeter show of fork. And that's that's a pretty big step up from say your Ninja 400s, your R3s. The RC390 does have an inverted fork. And what that is gonna do, uh, the inverted fork we'll say, is going to add a lot of chassis stiffness. This is probably the biggest uh, single component step up outside of the engine uh, when you're talking about something like the Ninja 400 because the Ninja 400's frame and the fork actually have a decent amount of flex to them. Uh, this is something that you really pick up on when you start tracking that bike and racing it. Uh, for example, my Ninja 400 race bike actually has an additional fork brace just to remove some of that flex from a traditional style fork versus an inverted fork. So that's what I'm talking about. So old school style fork versus new school style fork. New school style fork, stiffer. In most cases, better but that all depends. Anyway, um, so the only adjustment you have on that is preload. Okay, then going to the shock, you have a shock that essentially looks like it's from the ZX-10R. I mean, it, it has the same casing. It, it's the, pretty much the same show of shock, but it has a specific spring rate and valve and things like that. Um, does it have horizontal back linkage uh, just like the ZX-10R? and ZX-6R, so that's pretty cool. And it's all connected to a, a steel trellis frame. Uh, 
Now, if you kind of read the internet pundits and what they say, they're like, oh, well, you know, the, the original Kawasaki ZX, ZXR 400, that thing had an aluminum frame and fully adjustable suspension, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, yeah, that thing also came out like 35 years ago. And <laughs> stuff was a lot different back then. And uh, scales of economy have changed, we'll say. So I'm right. not really like get into that too much. But the ZX4R overall reflects modern manufacturing processes and pricing and logistics and everything that goes into it. So one of the many reasons why it doesn't have an aluminum frame is because it would make it cost exponentially more. Um, so that, that, I mean, that, that's literally the reason. Kawasaki would have given this bike an aluminum frame had they had the ability to price it at what they still felt was competitive. Instead, here we are. So this thing has a you know uh, inverted fork um, with preload adjustment and then a, a shock that's fully adjustable. And then you have the steel, steel trellis frame, tubular steel, and then you have a steel swing arm. And those two things are kind of like, eh. well, I had my doubts going into this test. I was like, ah, let's, I don't know, man. Um, just with my experience on the Ninja 400, I was thinking that it might have a little bit too much flex, you know, things like that, but that's not the case. The fork okay. itself and the shock for that matter, they both have quite good damping rates. You know, I'm at about 180 pounds, give or take, um, you know, without gear. So with gear, you're probably getting up into the 200s pretty easily. Um, you know, the damping is good. And that's really going to translate for someone that's street riding because it's going to be able to absorb potholes nicely and just be a fairly comfortable ride. Now, when you put it in a more aggressive racetrack setting where the acceleration is going to be much more aggressive, the braking is going to be much more aggressive, normally you might think that the bike will sort of wilt. And that's not what I experienced here. There are okay. some things that I'd like to fix, and I wish that we did have fully adjustable suspension just so we could truly balance, you know, the, the settings between the fork and the shock. Um, you know, I was able to get the fork in a better direction as to where I wanted it, but I still think I'm sort of overloading the spring rates overall. So I would personally up the spring uh, on the shock and the fork, and then if I could adjust the damping on the fork, that'd be cool, but we can't. Now let's just talk about what we got because that's the important thing. You know, coming into hard braking zones, the fork damping doesn't blow through the stroke, despite the fact that when you push on it, you go, oh, okay, it's a little, little softer, I guess. Um, but don't take that as, you know, wiggly or pool noodly, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it really does stand up to a fair bit of abuse. The shock, you know, that's the same. Same sort of observement there. Um, you know, it really, really tracks through a corner nicely. You can trail brake into corners and bring the bike to where you want it. So it's able to, to steer nicely. It feels small and compact and maneuverable, mainly because it is small and compact. Um, you know, so there's that. Um, but the, the bike overall is, is a very maneuverable and light and friendly motorcycle. Now the shock itself, kind of on the backside of that turn five I mentioned earlier, where you go up and then you have this quick left and it drops down the hill. Turns where you could really load the rear ends 
and uh, squat the bike down. The rear was squatting too much for me, but I was just overloading the, the shock. And with Japanese motorcycles in particular, they tend to be sprung for riders that are a little bit less or way of a little bit less than most American riders, um, typically. So you're looking at people that are in the 160 to 170 pound range versus most Americans that are in the 180 to 190 to 200 pound range. And that, you know, for track guys and, and racers that really understand spring rates and things like that, that, that that's very, very clear to these people, uh, which is kind of who Kawasaki Fields would be buying this thing anyway. So on the chassis front, you know, there are some things that I, I wish we had, but I understand that they can't happen due to pricing. Um, that said, I think the suspension is solid. Um, you know, there are things that I'd like to fix, but what we got works very well. And the chassis itself, the steel trellis frame and the steel swing arm, that again, that works very well. The bike just really translates that feeling of being a small, compact, lightweight, maneuverable motorcycle. And on the topic of weight, um, you know, this thing weighs 416 pounds. And if you were to compare it to the old school bikes, again, they're a lot lighter. But again, old school bikes had a lot less stuff. New bikes have a lot more stuff. Different, mm. different comparison. Um, you know, this thing is about, it's like 14 pounds or 16 pounds away from a ZX6R. And you'll hear a lot of people go, oh, well, it's so close to ZX6R in terms of weight. That would that observation would be very relevant if these bikes were similar size and uh, you were dealing with, you know, similar performance and, you know, crank weight of the engine and just all these different physics variables that would make those a more relative experience. But this thing feels light and it feels agile because it is small and compact. I mean, the wheelbase is a 54.3 inches. That's really pretty small. And then the rake is super steep, 23.5 degrees. Right. It's all pretty aggressive in terms of geometry. Um, you know, and, and talking about the thing being small and compact, I stand at five foot ten inches and I'm able, I'm able to fit on the motorcycle. The Ninja 400, um, I definitely had to do some ergonomic stuff when I went into a more track focused situation, as anyone would for that application, but I can fit on this bike and I'd be pretty happy just running it at the racetrack as is, you know, the only things I'd change are tires or, you know, stuff, basic stuff like that and still run track days pretty happily. All right. Uh, last thing I suppose is the, is the brakes. They're presumably pretty standard, I would think. Yeah. And again, another, another area where if, if you were to compare this to like, you know, Ninja 400s and stuff that are always going to be using, um, axial mounts and calipers. This thing has, you know, radial four piston monoblocks on it with a 290 millimeter rotor. So you got double the brakes and also ostensibly much more powerful brakes. And yes, that's, that's what you got. Now at the lever, when you're sitting there pumping the lever in the paddock, you're kind of squeezing on its little axial master cylinder. That's quite cute. You, um, <laughs> you kind of, you go, oh, it feels like a little spongy. Kind of think, eh, I don't know how this is going to work out on the track. Whatever sponginess you feel in that kind of initial part of the stroke kind of goes away because there is really good feel and the brakes work quite well. Again, we're not dealing with speeds where we're getting 
you know, deep, deep into the triple digits. We're, we're probably, you know, even in a full race trim, you're, you know, 130, 135, that would be, you'd be cooking on this little thing. Um, you know, these bikes are really about corner speed and not using the brakes in a lot of cases. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, that said, the, these brakes are a cut above what you have on any of the, the, the current lightweight class, uh, save for the RC390, which does have a rating mounted caliper, but it, only one of them. So this bike has two. Um, and then, you know, the rear brake works nicely and, you know, it's all hunky-dory. Um, but yeah, you know, just take a look at the story and sort of refreshing my memory on it. The thing is put together very nicely um, okay. and just has that ninja vibe, which Kawasaki definitely, you know, aims for some, uh, people might construe this as a negative word, but uh, homogeny between their sport bikes. You know, they have this, a similar appearance. They achieve similar goals. And, you know, this thing is super narrow, super light feeling, very approachable, very user-friendly, but it's still exciting. It still gives you that big bike sensation of ringing out a, a 6R or a 10R without the sort of arm-tugging terror that you might uh, experience on a 10R specifically. So that's a, that's a pretty serious bike if we're just going to be blunt. And, you know, depending on how quick you're riding, a 6R can be exactly the same. Um, but the fit and finish is very good. And you have that, you know, full color TFT display that's on uh, dozens of Kawasaki's at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, overall super solid bike. Uh, MSRP is $9,699 and it is in dealers now. Well, I guess the, the, the final quick question is, are you about to swap out your Ninja 400 race bike for the 400 RR or are you, or are they pretty competitive with each other? Well, in terms of just straight up stock bike to stock bike, this is a significant step forward over an Ninja 400 for most of the reasons that I, I mentioned before, but we'll just kind of consolidate them here. One chassis stiffness, ZX4R is going to be much, much stiffer and just much more apt to a larger and faster rider just out of the box. You have suspension adjustment, which you really don't have on the Ninja 400, save for some spring preload on the shock. Uh, it's just a much more advanced motorcycle in terms of chassis. Uh, braking, this thing has a lot more braking power. Perform Engine performance as well. Uh, even if we ignore the North American tune, it's still got two extra pistons, revs out a lot higher, and the, the, the potential for performance is much higher. Then you have the fit and finish, and that's a cut above. It's just objectively better and much more in line with a ZX6R and what you'd expect with a bike at that price point. And really, it is indicative of a $9,000 plus motorcycle. And Ninja 400 is still, you know, five-ish grand. Okay, so this bike is really is a definite step up from the Ninja 400. Oh, yeah, it's, that's, that's unquestionable. Not just in terms of performance, its riding, you know, abilities, but what you're getting out of it as well. I mean, the fit and finish is really, you know, matches its price point. Am I going to upgrade? Well, I'm considering it heavily. The question right uh. now is if uh, club racing leagues are going to, one, allow the bike, some already have, and two, if there's going to have a, if there's going to be a class for it specifically. So 
what I'm hoping with this bike is it sort of lights a fire with other manufacturers that want to tap into their own history. So Yamaha, right. Suzuki, oh, and Honda, of course, yeah. Honda. And, uh, you know, we'll see if they, they want to play the game. You know, to me, it's just as a, as a little bike fan, I think it's awesome that this thing has emerged because it really is, you know, something for the enthusiast. But there's plenty there for the average customer as well. And, you know, hopefully, you know, in the next couple of years or so, something, something from another manufacturer kicks out onto the market too. So I'm keeping my eye on it. And uh, as much as I love my little Ninja 400 race bike, this is a cut above that just in box stock form. So yeah, you know, we'll see. Hey, terrific. Thank you so much. Appreciate your uh, insight and inspiration as always. Associate editor Jonathan Handler brings us our snippet this week, and he talks about his new BMW Motorrad denim jacket. This jacket is listed at an eye-watering $559, so I was curious to hear Jonathan's take on the jacket's quality and design. I've just received the new denim men's jacket from BMW, and I must say that uh, it's quite nice and certainly constructed uh, a lot differently than any Levi's denim jacket that you've ever owned. <laughs> it is a Western style uh, with the two breast pockets that are kind of V-shaped that snap. Uh, it's tailored and tapered slightly with two hand warmer zippered pockets on either side. It's got a zipper that zips and an overlay that snaps. So <laughs> it's it's certainly a, a rider's jacket. One wouldn't call it just a bare minimum jacket. Uh, it's got protection in the shoulders and elbows. A BMW doesn't uh, specify brand. They call it NP Flex. It's this new generation of, of thin waffly kind of uh, uh, rubber protectors. Uh, hopefully I won't have to actually test them out. Uh, <laughs> inside is constructed nicely with a poly lining. Uh, and as is typical with many jackets, including BMW, it has got a zipper along the back to attach to any trousers that match that zipper type. And they do have that spare strip they've zippered in that one might so into the trousers, although I've seen it a million times and never done it. Uh, <laughs> okay. Lovely maroon. Uh, I had seen on the website that it was available in black for women and, and the denim blue for men. Yet here I am holding a, uh, a black denim. Uh, there is a cell phone pocket with a snap. Uh, on the left internal side, and on the right is a nice zippered pocket. So there are plenty of pockets uh, to be had with this jacket. Uh, the collar snaps down. So I guess that would uh, avoid any basset hound ear kind of flapping in the wind should one uh, <laughs> okay. take it and get going. Uh, 
And for $559, this isn't your grandpa's denim jacket. <laughs> but at the same time, it is a, a lovely piece of, of riding apparel. On the back, we find uh, a gold-stitched BMW Motorrad. And uh, in red underneath, established 1993. Oops, sorry, 1923. I think I need new glasses. <laughs> yeah. And this is, of course, part of the celebration of their 100th anniversary. And uh, finding the jacket very, very nice. It has no venting. Uh, if you want to vent it, just pull the zipper down slightly. What's the cut like? Is it? Is It looks pretty good. It looks pretty slim fitting. Is it fairly form fitting? Yeah, I'd call it medium slim. There are some darts in the front that extend down from the uh, breast pockets. Uh, uh, I wouldn't call it slim, but semi-slim. And, okay. you know, otherwise it wouldn't fit around my COVID waist. Uh, there are dual snap adjustable cuffs on it with gathers around them. So one might... Uh, snap it in a loose position to allow a little more air or snap it in the tighter position to uh, seal it off on a cooler day. Uh, I would rate this as a spring and fall jacket, unless you're in an area that's not too hot in the summertime. And uh, I'm I'm very well pleased with it. I think it's a lovely piece of of goods and uh, is typical of what I call uh, the very high quality of BMW apparel. Uh, I have owned many of their items over the years, uh, and I find them as good or better than just about anything one can buy. Uh, so they're living up to their name. They're living up to the $559 retail price on this. There's a label inside that does say 100 years BMW Motorrad. Yeah. Make life a ride. Okay. What more can I tell you? No, that's great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Despite, uh, so despite the eye-watering price, you do actually feel that it's worth it. Yeah, well, you know, what's worth what is in the eye of the beholder and the wallet of the beholder. That's so true, yeah. So it, hard to say. I haven't seen one at the rock store yet, nor around the streets. I've been wearing this for about two or three weeks and uh, enjoying it, getting some compliments from those who've seen it. And uh, it's the first denim jacket that uh, that I've worn riding that's, you know, that's an actual rider's denim jacket as opposed again to to levi's just a repurposed denim jacket yeah okay all right yeah but super high quality great uh stitching a real attention to detail again as i have found in all bmw apparel uh even the the ykk uh branded zippers even have the BMW logo on it. So no detail appears to be spared in the construction of this garment. And I love it. Right. Okay. 
Thank you very much. Appreciate the insight. In our second feature segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Wes Robinson. Wes has spent a lifetime buying, riding, restoring, and racing mainly American V-twin motorcycles. His career includes time spent as an AMA racing tech. I grew up in uh, central Pennsylvania. Uh, like I said, the youngest of three boys. Uh, how I got into uh, the motorcycling aspect, my oldest brother brought home a uh, Hodaka Ace 100, 1969 model when I was about 13 or so. Left it there at mom and dad's house and uh, that was my reward for doing yard work or doing my chores. I would get to ride the bike in the, uh, in the fields nearby the house. And so that's what kind of got me started. Uh, and uh, from there, it just kind of grew and grew. Well, interesting enough, so dad was a mechanic and owned his own service station. And uh, we'll get to your life um, in engineering and design and things as we move forward here. But so this was really how you uh, grew up was learning to work on your own vehicles, your own mechanics servicing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, uh, I think, you know, I, I appreciate dad every day. I, in fact, out in my shop, if you noticed, uh, I still have his sign from his service station with his name. So uh, he kind of looks over me every, every day I'm out there. It, uh, that was kind of his technique. I think all three of us got exposed, you know, he'd put tools in our hands and expect us to do a lot of the work. Uh, uh, my first car he found for me uh, was an old Ranchero that was actually a propane company car. and So uh, we ended up tearing that back apart, putting it back to regular gasoline and everything. But uh, uh, I got exposed to all sorts of stuff. Uh, spent one part of a hot summer, miserable, underneath that car with a wire brush and getting ready to scrape all the rust and, and uh, undercoat it with old roofing tar. and, and uh, but. Uh, got involved with bodywork on that thing, so I learned a little bit of that trade, and, and enough to be dangerous, and, but uh, just really appreciated, you know, as, as, as I got more and more involved with stuff and, and realized where a lot of that, those techniques and stuff, you know, originally came from stuff that he exposed us to, and just, you know, was really, really, you know, blessed to have, uh, have that exposure at such a young age, and then just to be able to build on that over the years. And the fact that he was supportive of you riding a motorcycle and but made you earn it essentially which is yeah cool. yeah pretty much i don't know initially how supportive he was <laughs> but uh you know mom wasn't but i know when we got involved with uh, you know started doing motocross and stuff uh you know dad was there you know i have a, I have a great photo it's out in the shop too that uh, it's a, a starting line photo of the little outlaw track that we used to race at. And in the background on the side of the hill across the starting line is my dad down in a, in a stance taking his photos, looking back at the guy taking the photo that's there. Was so, this on the Hodica or is this when you moved to the XL? This is when, yeah, this was on the, uh, when I started racing the uh, XL. So um, you bought a 1972 Honda XL 250? Yep, sure did. Uh, first. First brand new vehicle I ever bought. I bought that uh, was between my uh, the summer between my junior and senior years in high school, and uh, they had first come out '72. Uh, I was you know still kind of getting involved in, in as far as the mechanics and, and the engineering behind it, and what intrigued me was supposedly it was one of the Honda's first four valve heads, 
in uh, production. So that was kind of unique. Uh, all my buddies were on these two strokes, so I had to go buy the big heavy bike just because it had the trick head on it and stuff. But, uh, but it seems seems to me, looking back, and obviously you, you have a restored one in the garage now in testament to the original one, so we can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't seem like an, or it doesn't seem like an ideal bike to go motocross racing. No, not really. Uh, it was fun. What, uh, what this track did is they initiated uh, involved kind of as a sideline to their sanctioned stuff. They started what they called enduro class motocross. And so there were several of us that, uh, you know, we'd just take our old woods bikes and basically strip anything off, take the lights off. Uh, I remember one requirement was we had to have a speedometer drive on the front wheel. That was part of the class requirements just to prove that it was an enduro, not a true motocrosser. But you know, I had, uh, you know, we were doing stuff, you know, I had, at that point I'd already cammed up the Honda, so it was by, by, by no means was it stock, and, and uh, I guess I can admit to this day it had a bore kit, so it was really a 312 and a 250 class, but uh, it all, it all kind of panned out, I remember. Uh, we're not going to have a sanctioning body come and take your trophies no, back, so. are we? Was, <laughs> it was funny, we had, he had this little guy that was kind of one of the, you know, obviously we weren't, this, this class was an AMA sanction, but we had an AMA official at those races. And I can remember he was, he was a little guy, Bobby, and I'd come off the track after one of our races and Bobby goes, he'd always come up to me because I was pretty pretty uh, fortunate. I, I usually was able to do pretty good. I think I still even have some of the old trophies somewhere stashed. And, but I'd come off and Bobby would walk up to me. He says, you know, you, you ought to board that. You ought to cam that. And he, he knew something was going on because, but it was funny because uh, one of the guys I raced against was the father of the mechanic at the local Honda shop, and and uh, he was a dairy farmer. So he'd show up. He'd have to do you know the milking and stuff Sunday morning when we'd race, and so he was always late getting there. But he was always it was between he and I, and usually my brother on on his little two-stroke Honda and stuff. But uh, what Jeff had done for his dad was he had taken one of the old MR two-stroke enduro hondas and put a cr motor the motocross motor in it so he was by no means legal either so we, <laughs> we used to have it out we always had fun it was it was a great class a lot of great memories on it so you said eventually you you bought and stroked that thing out to about 360 yeah right? yeah it was a great old company back in the day power roll you know, build these kits and so i you know we had bored it and uh, i'd cammed it stroker crank in it and I think it ended up somewhere in an area like a 368 or something it was crazy so you Just, clearly you clearly had a lot of mechanical aptitude as well as being able to ride and race I mean, yeah this was, yeah I was you know at that point like say thanks thanks to dad again you know we he had exposed us a lot so this was stuff and again a learning experience right you know this is stuff that uh, for that that was the first time that any you know, my brother or Mariah either one that we had gotten involved my brother had come out of the navy as a mechanic so mm. you know he had he had kind of the background that at least you know we were gonna he was gonna experiment on my bike i guess but it worked <laughs> out yeah you know we learned a lot and you know as a, as a kid i mean i was you know maybe 18 at the time and, you know i was i was learning and you know i you know well why not go for it you know so so, so that led you to a couple of years at penn state university where you did a two-year degree in mechanical engineering, right? So that is all tying together, and that then took you out to work in Colorado. Eventually, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, ended up working in uh, in Colorado Springs. Uh, uh, initially, went out there to work for an outfit that did uh, 
uh, mining and, and quarry equipment. Uh, yeah, but that's I'd, 15, I'd done similar work in Pennsylvania right after I graduated from Penn State. I went to work for for a same similar company, different company, but similar equipment. Uh, was back in the day, you know, I got to get to Colorado and you know Rocky Mountain High and all that good stuff. So I had the opportunity. I was, you know, young single, why not? You know, went for it, and uh, so that got me out there, and, and uh, you know, just opened up a whole whole new set of avenues as far as riding and, and bikes and all that as well while I was doing that work. So, but you didn't stay with the mining. The whole idea of being fifteen hundred feet underground wasn't cutting it, right? No, no, <laughs> it uh, it uh, kind of lost its luster. I remember we were in a mine in West Virginia when I, the first job where I had that kind of work. We were underground and, and it took us out. There was this conveyor. It was a fairly modern automated mine. It wasn't like stuff you see in the old movies. But there was this conveyor going at about a 45 degree angle up out and at the very far end you could see this little spot of light. And the fellow that had us down there said, what are you going to do if you start hearing a rumble when you start seeing dust? And, uh, and I said, I'm going to run up that, that shaft right there. He said, you really think so? He said, that's at least almost three-eighths of a mile to the end up there. How At a 45-degree angle, how fast can you get out? And I just looked at that. Oh, no, this ain't for me. There's no <laughs> way. <laughs> so, so, you, so anyway, you, you ended up really landing a pretty uh, prime position with Texas Instruments. Right, right yeah. I was so. uh, able to get in there and uh, doing tool design with uh, Texas Instruments when they opened their facility in Colorado Springs. And, and uh, it was a great opportunity. Uh, it was a lot of, like say, defense-related type uh, product. And so got to work with a lot of exotic metals and, and uh, you know, just different uh, machining techniques. Uh, I, I by no means consider myself a machinist. I was fortunate to be surrounded by a really great machinists and everything. and. Uh, so, you know, kind of opened, opened my eyes as to what's possible. And uh, we were developing a lot uh, as far as automated, you know, factory type stuff. You know, I was first brought in, to, that's where I first started learning CAD. This was back uh, probably early 80s, early to mid 80s that uh, a lot of this was being developed. And uh, I remember going through training and stuff on some of the more cumbersome CAD uh, programs that were out there during the day, mainframe based stuff. But, uh, we were doing a lot of neat things, and you, um, you kind of you, you were still racing or riding off road on the HL, but you bought yourself a CV seven fifty and began to customize it. So this was another. Yeah, yeah, we uh, got out there, and, and uh, right before I moved to Colorado, I'd purchased uh, one of the old uh, single cam seven fifty Hondas, seven fifty F, and uh, was kind of getting into the to the cafe style, you know, I think that was one of the first that kind of started going towards that style from the factories and everything, and, and it caught my eye and everything, and so uh, started getting into it, you know, upgrading, you know, suspension and, and doing some of that stuff and, you know, airbox removal and all those good things, upgrading the ignition and stuff, and, you know, just hot rodding a little bit, and again, just continuing to learn as I, as I went along. Uh, got in with some, some fellows of like mines and and uh, we developed uh, back in the day we had a little club we called the uh, pikes peak cafe riders club and obviously it was it was geared towards sport bikes and uh, what there was of sport bikes back in the day and and uh, so we kind of you know developed that and uh, kind of had a lot of fun with it our club club plaque was a 
was a hacksaw because our, our, our intent was if you came to our and wanted to join our club but you had high bars on your bike, we were going to cut your handlebars off and put short ones on. So, But uh, we did a lot of charity work. You know, we did poker runs and that kind of thing and, and uh, raised money for different charities out in the area. And, and uh, you know, it was kind of neat to get the exposure uh, for motorcycling uh, in a positive light. You know, we, we were on some of the local newscasts when we do these charity things and, and was able to get the word out that way. Uh, so, it, uh, you know, it's kind of a positive thing. There was a few things going on in, in Colorado Springs at the time. You know, there was some issues with some of the other part of the community. A lot of bars and restaurants were starting to ban people coming in with any kind of bike t-shirts or, you know, jackets on and stuff. So we we were uh, fortunate enough to kind of educate, you know, we didn't really confront, but we, we sat down with several of the downtown restaurants and owners and stuff and, and kind of got that turned around a little bit too as part of that Cafe Riders Club. So yeah, it was kind of yeah. fun. And at the same time, um, your RD400, which you still have, um, mm -hmm. which is beautiful, I might add, came into your life and you began racing it. So right. but that wasn't just a case of racing a, stock, racing a stock bike because you started developing that bike and racing. Right, yeah, we, uh, as part of the club, we had a <coughs> fellow, that, uh, he, uh, he had a RD that he had, I guess, given to his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law wasn't doing anything, had been sitting for a year or two. And, and so uh, he had, volunteered he said hey i got a bike if if we want to build and go racing so we all jumped on it there was six or eight of us pretty active on that bike when the, it, from the club and it's got the club name on the bike and everything still to this day and, but it was one of these things again uh put together as as for all of us i think most of us there was three or four pretty much intent on building the thing and uh you know, we kind of did the research and, you know, all that, build build specific parts and, you know, upgrading, obviously, suspension and reinforcing the swing arm and the frame and all those good things. And, and uh, so we, we kind of put it all together and, you know, worked over uh, a fall into over a winter and getting ready to get into the next season. That would have been probably about 1985, 86, somewhere in there. And, mm. And so when it got down, it was like, okay, now who's going to ride it? And everybody's kind of looked at each other, and I said, well, wait a minute. Everybody, you know, six months ago, everybody was going to ride it. Now <laughs> none of you guys want to. So I was able to, you know, we had a pretty good relationship with some of the dealers in, in the city there in Colorado Springs through our charity work. And so a couple of those guys stepped up to help me, you know, with, you know, leathers and helmets and, you know, stuff like that and tires and so we ended up going racing the uh, the first year, obviously with an organization, MRA at the time, a Mountain Road Racing Association, that raced through several tracks there in Colorado. And uh, so, uh, you know, I was able to, fortunately, you know, I felt pretty good about how we built the bike because the first year the bike pretty much, you know, we if, if we had issues, if we blew an engine or anything, we did it in practice and testing. But the race weekend seemed to go pretty good. So I was able to get through my, my novice and the way they were structured, you had to have so many points and so many race hours and all that to advance into the expert ranks. And so I was able to do that before the end of the first season, just more so on the longevity of the bike staying together. <laughs> and uh, because it 
you know, over the next few years, it was pretty obvious that, uh, that I'm not a racer. I'm probably more of a wrench than I am a racer, but uh, I still had a lot of fun. And, and uh, you know, like say, the, you know, the experiences, I, I met people there that I ran into years later doing the AMA stuff that were still involved. So it was kind of fun to have that longevity of the race, race community too. There's a, a very cool story about the drag strip and the 12 pack testing. I particularly like. Oh, about yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. We used to, we used to do a, one of the tracks we'd race at was Pueblo Motorsports uh, Park down in, in Pueblo, Colorado. And, and it was close enough by for us that we would, uh, we figured out how we could go test in the weekdays, you know, we run down in an evening before it got dark after work. And so, uh, Pueblo Motorsports Park was owned by the city of Pueblo, and, and uh, so they actually had an on-site caretaker, so to speak, that was out there. He was living in a little trailer home, and and so we'd go out there and you know show up after work with a 12-pack of beer, and he'd invite us and let us run run the bike around till it got dark if we took him a 12-pack. So we spent part of one summer doing our testing with a with a beer budget. So that is awesome, and so. And at the same time, you picked up a kind of a fantasy dream bike for yourself. You got yourself an 83, one of the original Honda Interceptor 750s, because I guess in in the day, there was such a buzz about that bike, wasn't there? Yep, yeah, yeah. The, read about it, you know, saw it someplace in, in some of the magazines and stuff that Honda was coming out with this, with this new kind of state-of-the-art, you know, race bike for the street, you know, and so I threw threw a deposit down with one of the local Honda shops there in, in Colorado Springs and and uh, just kind of waited, you know, and hoping it was coming and knowing that, that uh, I was going to be one of the first anyway. And and uh, so uh, originally, you know, our race bike was uh, uh, red and white. So I kind of, you know, when the original uh, Interceptors came out, they were either red and white or blue and white. And so, uh, you know, waited, got the call one day and dealer called me and said, uh, you know, good news and bad news. He said, good news is your bike's here. And I said, well, what's the bad news? He said, well, it's blue and white. I said, I don't care. I'll take it. So, And I thought for sure I was going to have the first interceptor on the street in Colorado. And then I found out a few weeks later, it ridden down to one of the races uh, and had it sitting there. And, and uh, kind of another fell out of Denver. And we compared notes, and he beat me by about two, three hours having his on the street. And he, he got his in the morning, and I had to wait till I got off work to get mine. So he beat you. So, but uh, yeah, great bike, still have it. So by 1991, um, your job with uh, Text Instruments has gone away, mm -hmm. and you, your son is born by now, and mm -hmm. still got the Honda. Yes, mm -hmm. um, got the RD, got the got the interceptor um, you moved around through Texas San Antonio for a while um, mm -hmm. met your current wife um, and spent some time on your one and only Harley yeah it uh, was oh, the one and only Harley in your life I should say well yeah I was the one and only that I owned you know I had uh, was fortunate enough to come across uh, an XL CR the old cafe racer and uh, which is very rare bike to be yeah isn't it? yeah yeah they're uh, they're quite collectible at this point. I ended up selling that to to take care of some some tax and financial issues, you know, and, and post divorce kind of things. How those <laughs> things seem to go, but uh, 
<laughs> and it wasn't a great loss in my mind. I, I rode it. it. It was a terrible bike to ride. I mean, it didn't stop. It didn't turn. It didn't accelerate. But every time you stopped, you had a crowd around. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing that was fun about it. Was you know, people were always wondering what it was, you know, and and, and like say, you know, to the, today now I wish I had it because you know I just I saw one uh, go across the internet for sale uh, about a week ago. You know, the tune of about seventeen grand someplace. So they're wow. uh, they're definitely uh, sort of collectible. Know, yeah, but they're terrible bikes to ride. <laughs> I don't. It's it's no wonder they only lasted two years. So crazy so you end up back in pennsylvania which is where you're from mm -hmm. and um go to work for an order supplier mm -hmm. and uh, you find a very innocuous little ad in a newspaper and you apply for a job and this was a big life changer uh well i had two ads that i replied to so i don't know which one you're talking <laughs> to the one with the h and the d in it <laughs> ah yeah yeah actually was uh was recruited uh, through an ad uh, through my headhunter uh, and uh, looking for you know a manufacturing engineer with some background in this and that and the other and it seemed to fit so I called him up and sent him a resume and turns out that uh, the job was a contract position in the paint department with Harley-Davidson there in York Pennsylvania so close enough it was uh, you know 45 40 45 minute ride to to get there and back each day so it wasn't too bad and uh, I got involved with a uh, process called pad printing that we were experimenting with as far as a way of putting logos and graphics on on painted parts uh, fenders tanks that kind of thing uh, you know so worked through that uh, had some great you know ideas and everything you know i remember you know, willie davidson came to the plant one time and we got to talking about how we could do all sorts of stuff individualized stuff for for owners putting their name on the top of tanks and doing different little interesting graphics and stuff fairly inexpensively and everything the trouble was the process was great for golf balls and die cast little cars it wasn't so great for big sheet metal parts and mainly because the sheet metal had just enough variation that the process with more than one color, it was hard to get the, the alignment, the registration between the colors to stay where it needed to be. So was that, predom that was predominantly on the tanks? Right? Yeah, primarily the tanks, of course, you know, the shapes of those, the, the, you know, the, the curvature of those. And, you know, as much as they all look alike when you get down to the to the to the microns of the surface of that tank, which is really what we were talking about, it, it varies enough that it was just enough for one to, to the next to the next, the, the variation just kind of messed with this. The flat side, like the fenders that we were doing were all flat sided, worked perfect, it was great. Uh, but the, the sheet metal that had any kind of, of curve or, or you know shape to it just didn't seem to want to cooperate. We weren't good enough to get perfect shapes every, every, every part, so. But you moved on from the paint department yeah, the, there. Yeah, the, the fortunate thing for me was it got me in the facility and uh, just so happened they had an opening for a manufacturing engineer on what was at the time the uh, Sportster assembly line. And uh, so, you know, I, of course, at that point I had enough about motorcycle. I mean, I could talk bikes. I've been around bikes, you know, since I was 13. So I had, so I shoehorned into that pretty easily and you know, jumped on that, worked with a couple guys that were the supervisors on the line. I was the sole engineer for the line and then there was two supervisors. and. Uh, we, uh, we fit right in, so it worked out real well. And uh, 
you know, working at Harley was, it, it was interesting to say the least. It was, it was an interesting group of folks. Big facility, you know, I mean, it was, you know, we were doing a little bit of everything, you know, you name a process, it was probably at that facility in those days. Uh, but uh, they used to, I, I used to be the kiss of death, they'd claim, because uh, th that particular line, we started with Sportsters, it had broken off the main assembly line right before I got there, and so there was a separate Sportster line. Uh, and then, if you recall, uh, Harley opened up a facility in Kansas City and that became the Sportster Assembly Facility. So I helped train those folks from, from Kansas City, and then they transitioned the Sportsters from my line out to Kansas City, and we became then the Dynaglide line and went to work as uh, building Dynaglides because they were similar enough in Sportsters, you know, dual shock rear ends and stuff like that, pretty similar in, in overall concept. And uh, so anyway, I uh, did that for a year or two, and in the process they decided to transition the, the Dynaglide to Kansas City as well so away it went <laughs> and I said man it's just it's, uh, you don't want to work on that line because you, you, you're, you're gonna lose your job but nobody really did but it was funny uh, but you know the, the thing was it, it exposed me you know to enough of the different product lines that then I I went to work for uh, the quality department within Harley uh, the director there had uh, come up with a uh, with a concept of doing uh, employee involvement uh, problem solving, and so we we uh, it was three of us, me and two other individuals, that we became these these quality leads that went throughout the facility and whatever the leadership in a given area, say it might be the chrome department, it might be the press operations for sheet metal assembly, could be anything paint. So they would, they would identify one or two problems, so to speak, or opportunities, I guess you'd say, to where there could be cost savings or something that would be helpful as far as employee you know, interaction, that kind of thing. And so we would make these little teams up and work with people, work, you know, do our research and do, the, do some trials and that type of thing, do a lot of, of data-driven kind of uh, problem solving and come up with concepts to then implement to help improve or you know reduce costs and stuff and then it, it uh, and took it to the point where these same people a lot of the hourly people had never experienced you know having to do presentations or anything like that with management and stuff so you know it was kind of fun to kind of coach them through that kind of thing and we would do these presentations and then implement the thing and then hopefully recognize you know some of that so it was a great opportunity uh, for those of us involved because like I say it took me into literally every manufacturing department at the facility over a period of a couple of years uh, never knew much about chrome plating I know a whole lot more about chrome plating than I care to know you know but uh, it, it, it's unique in and of itself uh, you know as far as press work and steel you know uh, welding uh, we had a fellow there that was part of the VR 1000 road race program. A uh, fellow named, uh, we knew him as Mikey Toff. Sometimes he went by Jack. I don't know why, but he came over. He was, I think, with uh, Armstrong in England. He was a British guy. He came over to develop the frame for the VR. And I got to know him through uh, one of these problem solving teams that we did in the frame shop there. And, uh, uh, we were at the time we were building the VRs. This was before CVO came into fruition there at York, 
And uh, so the VRs were actually being constructed in what became the CVO assembly line. And uh, so my passion, I was wandering back to that back building on every opportunity because, I mean, here were these, these really cool road race machines being built, you know, hand-built by a small crew back there. And so I kind of, you know, ipso facto just, you know, became part of that by a little bit just by being there. And uh, so it was kind of interesting little facility back there. Once the VRs went away, then they built little military bikes, uh, basically off little single cylinder 500s and uh, built several of those. I think some of those went to Israel for the Israeli army. And I think our our military took a small batch, but never, it, it kind of went kind of flash in the pan. It was there and then it, there was no real market for it, I guess. So they got out of it. But So uh, got involved with the CVO group and stuff. And then through that, once CVO came, came more in. And that was how these very high-end custom yeah, factory yeah, custom, custom vehicle operations. Custom it vehicle. was actually, it wasn't so much a, a original equipment program as it was a parts and accessories uh, program, uh, primarily because what it was, it was taking a standard model you know, and putting a custom paint uh, package on it and then whistles and bells, whatever you can imagine, you know, radios and exhaust and shocks and wheels. and I mean, you name it, it was there. We always have a, a unique kind of seat, you know. I remember one year doing shark skin seats and, you know, stuff like that. And, and uh, so it was it was kind of fun that way. Just be, you know, we, we got to do a little bit... Uh, I was involved with the line. We eventually broke it out. There was actually two two CVO lines before it, uh, before I left there. Uh, Don't tell one, me they sent them to one Kansas. doing one doing you know kind of like a bagger bike, and then one doing something else, soft tail, some sort or something like that. And and uh, but the the one year right before we left, I was actually involved with the program to put automated assembly little trolleys uh, that were automated and, and you know kind of guided themselves through the facility, you know, so that was kind of interesting, the first exposure to something that was kind of, I hate to call it artificial intelligence because it was kind of driven by their own, you know, readers and stuff, but it was, it was unique in the aspect of Harley that it was a standalone, it was very, very flexible. We could change the pattern on the floor and rebuild the concept of the assembly line literally within, you know, 30, 40 minutes, you know, so it was pretty neat. What I find fasc fascinating about this time period is, um, you know, it doesn't look like you drank the Kool-Aid because you now end up with an SV650 track bike, a Ducati 851, and an, and you replace the XL250 for an XR500 to go dirt bike riding, but no Harley. Well, you know, <laughs> the, the fun thing with Harley was, too. I you guess know, you had we, bikes at your disposal. To exactly, ride. yeah. We, we, we took, you know, we'd go through a little quick training class, you know, once we had our card, you know, we were a card carrying member, then we could, you know, we could sign out bikes and stuff and, and get them that way. Plus, you know, we get involved. Uh, I did quite a bit, you know, you know, we'd go out to the, to these, uh, you know, festivals and meets and stuff and do demo rides. And so I got involved actually with Buell doing that quite a bit when Buell was still active. Uh, and again, they like, you know, the race background that I had, and I got you know pretty well tied in with some of the leadership there with with Buell motorcycles to do lead rider and chase rider we called it on the demo rides for Buell and stuff. So mm. I got plenty of activity. But yeah, I mean you you can t 
take the boy away from the racetrack, but you can't get the racetrack out of the boy. So I was always, you know, still am kind of a sport bike. You well, you, and you had your SV650 track bike, so yeah. you were riding that, I presume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Which, it's a shame we can't actually see that because it's, it's a testament or shout out to the VR1000 with the flip-flop paint with the red and the black and the line down mm -hmm. the middle. So it's like a... Yeah, that, that was a fun project. Uh, we bought that, uh, my wife and I, uh, Jeanette, took a class in uh, auto restoration. And uh, so that became her school project for that class. And uh, so, uh, you know, she was able to work through, you know, and it was, it was, uh, you know, interesting for her because there was several, you know, different items, you know, we had metal for the gas tank and plastic and fiberglass on the fairing bits and stuff. And so it was great for her for a class project on how to prep and paint and do all that. So all the graphics and all the, all the, the, uh, the good looking stuff that you noticed, that, that's a testament to her. And uh, so we, we took that and went through, you know, I, I did the mechanical and stuff and just kind of upgraded where we needed and, and uh, been having fun with it. It's still sitting out there. It doesn't get used quite as much as I'd like, but a uh, uh, neat project for us. As, as yeah, very cool. And you still, obviously you still have it, so I get to see it. And you still have the 851, which is absolutely beautiful, by the way. Yeah, that's a keeper. That, uh, yeah, yeah. That, uh, that one was a, actually a demo bike from a small mom and pop dealership in north central pennsylvania that uh anybody knows uh maybe remembers mike duzik from back in that area that uh mike was a great bevel gear aficionado he's probably one of the guys that knew more than any that i knew of about bevel gear and this was a demo i guess you'd call it from from his dealership so the 851's a, a great bike he's done some work on it before i got it and and uh, so uh it was actually uh, i got it from a another dealer on consignment from a fellow that had bought it from Mike. Uh, this fellow had won one of the motorcycle magazine giveaways back in the day. He'd won a, a 916, so he put the 851 in on consignment and I was able to find it. And Jeanette actually convinced me to buy it when we were there looking at it. So I gave yeah, a testament to her. No, I do. I like this eclectic view that you have of motorcycling, you know, from two-stroke race bikes to four-stroke dirt bikes to v-twin bikes it's, it's it's very cool but so you ended your career with harley in cvo but at the same time you had picked up another interesting i guess job hobby or passion um doing technical inspections for ama superbike races yeah yeah a uh how do you that that was which seems that again. was one of these ones you know <laughs> it was it literally you know it was a small ad in the back of cycle news you know, the weekly newspaper that used to come out. And uh, I guess they're still online. I see them around. But uh, it was a, a, you know, a thing from AMA Pro Racing that they were looking for, for help for the racetrack for, for technical inspectors. And, you know, so I called the number out to Ohio and talked to uh, Rob King at the time. He was in head of the AMA Superbike Tech stuff. And which I never understood. Rob was kind of a bicycle guy, but he was there, so I talked to him, and I, he said, well, tell me about yourself, and I told him, I said, well, I used to club race out in Colorado and, and uh, work for Harley now, and I'm a mechanical manufacturing engineer slash, you know, and he <laughs> said, okay, uh, well, tell you what, can you get to Mid-Ohio, you know, two weeks from now, and I said, 
sure. He said, well, come to the gate. Just tell them that you're here with me, and they'll give you a pass, and you come in, and we'll see what's what. So that's how I started. It was, it was really bizarre. I just went out, and they gave me a shirt to wear, and, and you know, we kind of did the thing. And, and, you know, I was fortunate uh, Terry Siegfried was his kind of right-hand man, and uh, Terry was a great guy uh, to know as far as learning the ropes. I mean, Terry was an instructor with the uh, Motorcycle Mechanics Institute down in Florida, and uh, so he was a great guy to, to, to show me the ropes, so to speak, and he and I hit it off, and, and it just blossomed from there. I just, you know, I pretty much started doing mostly, pretty much all the events on, on the eastern half of the country for sure. And, you know, if I could, you know, travel to wherever, you know, the rest of the time. But did that for about eight seasons, you know. So, so. I mean, you must have some pretty intimate knowledge of all the top superbikes of the era, looking them through and making sure they're all up to spec. And Yeah, yeah, we, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting. You know, we would, it was at our discretion, when I say our, you know, typically it was Terry, or Rob would make the call, or whoever at the time. Rob, I think after a year or so, he would he had moved on. But uh, we would make the determination at each event, at each you know, because we would look at qualifying and we would look at the different races. Because obviously back in the day, we would do three day weekends. I mean, we were there on Friday doing practice and, and qualifying, and then we had races Saturday and we had races Sunday in the Superbike and heyday. But we would make the call as to what we would do. You know, we might look at suspension bits one time. We might look at top end of an engine. You know, it just was whatever felt best, you know. And there, occasionally, we would do a fairly involved teardown of engines and stuff as well. Would you put it back together for them? Oh, we didn't do it. That was on them, you know. The, the ruling was, you know, when they would come into the tech building, that they were allowed two of their mechanics and only two. And there was no back and forth. And so what we would do is we would oversee, and then if we had specific parts, say pistons or whatever, if we had specific parts that we wanted to measure, they would come to us and then we would do the, the, you know, the actual inspection of them. And so, you know, I can remember one time out at Mid-Ohio, we were doing engine teardowns, and this is when, you know, I think it was Farachi was, you know, it was one of the Ducati teams. And I remember because, you know, I'm kind of a Ducati guy, you know, and, and so I remember looking at this thing and I was thinking, I'm, look at this, I'm probably one of a handful of people that are seeing the guts of this engine right here, you know, and getting my hands on it and stuff. And so it was great. But yeah, there was all sorts of uh, uh, interesting little things that we kind of see and learn. And, you know, like say, as I'm building bikes now, I can think back of certain little things that, oh yeah, I'm going to do this, this little thing here or there, you know, that's something that I just happened to pick up because of that involvement, so. Yeah, that's, I mean, what a great uh, eight years. I mean, that must have been fantastic. Yeah, it was, a, it was, to me, it was, you know, I call it the heyday, you know, that was, I can remember, when, you know, you'd pull into the track and there'd be, you know, a dozen semis there, you know, every, yeah. every factory had at least one, if not two trucks there. And there used yeah. to be spectators and people. Oh, and yeah, huge turnouts and stuff. You know, this was back, you know, uh, you know, I go back, you know, these are kind of, I don't know if they're heroes, but they were guys that I really looked up to for their talent back in the day. You know, the Matt Maladins and, you know, you, know, you name it. You know, Yvonne DeHommel and Nikki Hayden. And, you know, I remember still uh, occasionally, you know, 
would meet up with some of the, you know, got to know, you know, the Hayden family pretty, pretty well, you know, mm. just from hanging out. Cause typically they would stay, you know, Earl and Rose would stay at the same, same hotels. We'd have breakfast together and stuff before going to the track. And, you know, so it was kind of neat that way. But, uh, I mean, just, you know, you look at the talent back then, it was just phenomenal. And, uh, the, 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 factory, was the factory involvement and then you know we had a lot of fun stuff too going on i mean I, we still there were several years when i was involved we still did the 250 gps the little 250s would come out and you know just you know it was great you know having having that kind of a uh, of a dichotomy of of uh, you know the different models and everything and sounds and smells and you know, it was a lot of fun. So. Were you there the year Chuck Sorensen won on the Aprilia? Mm -hmm. I rode that bike. Oh yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Got, I got a chance. Jamie James mm -hmm. was fettling it. We used to it. kid about it. We would always say Chucky's here because Chucky's team was, you know, the guys he was with, and they'd sit down there, and I don't remember if you know, the the two fifties come out, and they'd always want to get them up to temp, right? So because a lot of them were some of the early water cooled stuff too, right? And so you could always tell when they were getting ready because they'd be sitting rin, 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 rin for, for 10 minutes at least. You know, you'd be sitting there and that's all you'd hear is it's just wrapping and off, wrapping and off, wrapping and off. And it, <laughs> Chucky's here, you know, so. That bite was amazing. I, I was that it. the one that had the uh, snakeskin body wrap on it? He had when one I wrote it, it was a, a oh, just gentleman a, by the name of Adrian Jazzo was uh, owned it and racing it, and Jamie James and Doug Crawford were looking after it. Okay, okay. So it used, to live, it used to live at Jamie's workshop, so I saw it many times. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then one time I was at Roblin Road, Jazzo was down there with Jamie and Doug, and they're like, well, why don't you, what do you need to sing out for a ride? So I actually got to ride that bike, which was, uh, was quite yeah. special. But so that's, um, so the, two of the, both these things came to the end then. So it was 07, and you see an opportunity to start a whole new career yeah. or job, well, not career, yeah, we guess career with, well, with, with India. Part of the career, anyway, it was yeah, a yeah. step in the career. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it uh, uh, was reading things about Indian, you know, uh, really hadn't followed it. I mean, again, it's not really, really my passion was, you know, the big bikes, but was seeing things from, from my manufacturing point of view that Indian was getting back into it, that there had been, you know, a lull in, in the building of them after Gilroy in, in California. And and, so and that was an interesting period, wasn't it? Because the Gilroy period is when they were putting the S&S engines in. Yeah, yeah, they had... They, they, had, weren't, they weren't terribly successful with them. Right, they had a lot of issues. Uh, I think that's really what, what, what put them under. Uh, what we, we heard about anyway is that, uh, I believe it was an investor, I believe out of Japan, if I recall, that had primarily put a lot of the money behind that at Gilroy operation back in the 90s and uh, you know they were building up into I think 0304 and apparently this fella was was kind of wanting to see his return on his investment and so he kind of approached and started digging into it a little bit and realized that uh, that uh, that uh, you know they were uh, they would never get me yeah they they were as as, as I heard it, 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 he was concerned that they were losing money on every bike they sold with all the, the concerns on warranty claims and everything that were going through and uh, so uh, they uh, they pulled the plug and they pulled it rather drastically 
one of the fellows that came to work for us as our uh, service tech when we, we started our operation was a dealer for the Gilroy operation. He had a dealership in Ohio. And he tells the story of his, uh, his wife calling him. He was on his way, I think he said, to the dealer meeting. And, and or a regional meeting or something. Said, she called Don't bother, said, honey. <laughs> yeah, I said, might as well turn around. I just got word that the factory shut down in, in, in California. And when I was starting the factory here, I talked to a fellow to do uh, paint work, and he was the paint shop manager in Gilroy. And he was telling me he was in a conference room at their facility on Wednesday morning leaning across the table to shake a hand on a million dollar paint equipment deal. And that Friday he was packing his boxes into his pickup and that was his last day. It was that drastic of a shutdown uh, the way it was explained to us anyway. So, and to, so, so, so we inherited all that. I mean, right. you stop and think, I mean, there was dealers that weren't getting support, there was customers that weren't getting support, there were suppliers that were out. You know, so that's what we started when we started operation here in Kings Mountain. So just to back it up a little bit, you got the you got the job, right? You, you right. left Harley, right? And because at that point, I think he said um, your only real chance of big uh, forward progress at Harley would have been to go to Milwaukee, which you didn't want to do, right? Yeah. So coming down here to North Carolina with this new startup, Indian right. was. Uh, yeah, it was it was a unique opportunity. Uh, like I say, you know, I, I was looking at uh, I'd gone back to school. I'd gotten a master's degree, you know, through Harley. They had initiated a program for some of the extra education and everything. Took advantage of that, but it, it became pretty apparent that that my only uh, real chance for advancement within the Harley group was going to be in Milwaukee, and and didn't really have a desire. I'd, you know. Moved, uh, moved Jeanette and, and the boys up here from Texas, and you know, just you know, I wasn't really inclined to move a whole lot. And, and but then this opportunity came about. I, I'd seen these uh, these you know deals about you know Indian coming back after after California, and so I sent some information and a resume, and, and uh, figured I'd never hear from them again. And, and uh, so it uh, it kind of went went you know in one ear and out the other and didn't think anything of it and uh, it was kind of it was a great spring summer for me because I had also talked to Buell like I mentioned I think I was doing some work for them on their demo rides and stuff so I got to know some of the folks at Buell and they were looking for some additional they were you know Eric was talking about growing his facility there in Wisconsin and then one of the former Harley guys that I'd worked with had gone to work for one of these uh custom chopper builders out in Colorado. And so uh, I had looked at, uh, he had called me up and he said, hey, I need, I need somebody out here to A, not only run my production, we're, we're ramping up, we're gonna go build a bunch of these things. But he said, I know you, he said, I want somebody that's gonna help me design some of these things. So I thought, man, that's kind of fun. So I had an opportunity with the chopper guys, I had an opportunity with Buell and panned out, I had an opportunity with, with uh, Indian because they ended up calling me up and I get this call from this fellow Nick Nick Glaja turns out he was a guy from Harley in Milwaukee he had gone to work for the Indian guys in fact he used to live right across the way over here you look out the window uh, but uh, so uh, went to all three places on interviews and uh, was really really 
anxious to try the one out in Fort Collins, Colorado. A nice little college town, have a neat new brewery put in there. You know, everything was looking cool and everything, but just couldn't seem to quite, you know, I'd talk to them and then it would go go dark. And, and then the Buell thing I started looking at, and I thought, well, this is kind of dumb. I don't want to move to Milwaukee to work for Harley, but I'm thinking of moving to Milwaukee to work for Buell. And yeah. So it's like that didn't really pan out, and they weren't really offering what I thought I was worth. So I kind of, you know, ended up with uh, what became the lesser of three evils and came came down here to because of the opportunity. I mean, basically what they they presented to me was a chance to design my own factory, essentially. And so, you know, kind of a catch-22, you know, double-edged sword kind of thing where, okay, you know, you design and lay out how you want this assembly floor to look, and, uh, oh, by the way, then you're going to be the production manager and you have to use it then. So, so it was kind of neat. It was, you know, to me, it was like almost entrepreneurial for me personally because it was like, okay, I'm going to lay this thing out. I'm going to figure out how I want this, these things to go together. And we had a lot of help developing our assembly process with the guys that we brought in. But then making it work, you know, and being able to build enough to satisfy a dealer network and that kind of thing. So but the opportunity was so unique that, I mean, it was kind of no-brainer. And it was funny, when, when Jeanette and I first got married, we were looking about, you know, because I had the opportunity in Pennsylvania before Harley up there, and it was close to, to my, my son. So we ended up moving there, but one place that we kind of looked at, because she knew of my interest in racing, well, of course, around here, Charlotte, and you know, you know you're from up there, so you know all about the NASCAR tie-in and all the race shops that are available. And, and in fact, a couple of the guys that we hired at Indian were former engineers for teams in NASCAR and stuff. So you know, there was that, that tie-in that we kind of looked in this area at one point years ago, years before that, and so we ended up coming down here for the opportunity. It's interesting, really. I mean, so your first job with Indian down here at Kings Mountain, it's Kings Mountain, North Carolina, is just to the south of Charlotte. So mm -hmm. really, it was just cleanup uh, duty for the, the mess of Gilroy. And then, oh, yeah. And yeah. then developing your own motorcycle really yeah, from part, scratch yeah part of the team i mean it was if if, if you really dug through and look at it at, at who the the leadership and i, I put a lot of this on, on nick nick Lager that i mentioned mm -hmm. it that he brought a lot of folks in as far as the technical team that was brought in and phenomenal team for as small as it was and what we were able to accomplish and how we did it uh, pretty neat pretty neat uh, you know story right there you know it was uh, a handful of guys, probably eight to 12 guys that were brought in, majority of them Harley, uh, or some of them Harley, probably most of them that Nick knew. Super talent, you know, guys that have background. Uh, Jean-Marc David, that was our, pretty much R&D head, uh, mm -hmm. French fella, great guy, great rider, old X-Racer as well. Uh, he had done some work. I, I believe he had done some work actually on a lot of fuel injection even for Honda, and I think he had mentioned he had a one-point project with F1 Honda. 
So, is, so you is, had a pretty talented. Oh, team. the talent yeah. that was there was and, phenomenal. Yeah. And you had Julius's Chriscroft money. Yeah, yeah. We had the Ed Stelikens money. Stelikens, uh, you know, was part uh, again. You know, the other big part of them was mm. was Chris Craft boats. And but stuff. I just, I mean, I just remember the factory itself was very clean, very efficient. You had your workstation assembly mm -hmm. lines. I mean, it was pretty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a very know, it tight was, operation. It, it was. It was a lot of what I learned, you know, at Harley from a from a super high volume when we were on the Sportster slash mm -hmm. Diamond line. You know, that was high volume, you know. We but were these building we hundred bikes, you know, a day yeah. there, you know. Yeah. And then the CVO thing was kind of more along the same line as what Indian became. It was very small, small volume, you know, hand-built more or less. And, you know, you know we, we put the money where we needed to, the automation that went in there, the torque tools and everything that were numerically controlled and they controlled the movement on the line if, if a torque wasn't correct you know it couldn't move and that kind of thing so there was we, we put the money you know we weren't wasn't Harley we didn't have endless bottomless pockets you know so we, we had to spend it you know pretty wisely and and so put the money where it made the most sense and so you know uh, and, and then keeping uh, to me I you know Organization is everything, you know, and and the best way of avoiding mistakes is is organization up front, and so that's kind of the, the mentality that I went into when we started uh, started doing the layout for the line there in Kings Mountain and taking just basic concepts that were learned for lean manufacturing and that type of thing to go in and lay out, you know, we laid out the main assembly floor as a U-shaped line so we could access both sides of the line to supply parts and, you know, fasteners and all the stuff like that without interrupting. We never had to cross the line to, to feed parts to it and stuff. Um, and it, it was an efficient use of the floor because it's fairly compact. You're not making it one long string through the building. You're actually going up, crossing, and coming back in a U-shape. So it made sense that way. And then any sub-assemblies were off to the sides of that. So we could do like our tank sub-assemblies and fender sub-assemblies and that kind of thing and feed the line directly then with a sub-assembly instead of trying to build everything right on line. And the engine was the same way. We built, you know, about a five stations assembly line for the engines. It was all done by team. You know, we had one fellow that would build an engine. So he would follow his engine down the line and you know do the sequential build for the engine uh, himself same way the bike you know we'd have a two-person team make each bike you know online and then to carry that to the final end uh, you know we would have a certificate of completion or certificate of build that all three of those people would sign and uh, we had made it so where we'd have stamps with printed version of their name to put on this certificate and then they would sign it you know and then that would go to the customer the end customer once the bike was purchased and I used to tell them I said well you know we're gonna do like we used to do at Harley we're gonna send people out to these demos and stuff like that and I said you know and you're gonna meet your customers you know they're gonna come to you and you know they're gonna Oh, yeah, I remember that name. I think that's the guy you built my bike, you know. And I said, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to punch you in the nose or they're <laughs> going to buy you a beer. So you make it the way you want them to come out. 
You but but uh, so it was fun, and we, uh, you know, we. Uh, I remember we did our open house. It was probably after we first got going. We were pretty well, you know, up and established and everything. So uh, Chris Bernauer was general manager, another Harley guy. He was the the uh, program manager for for sports for Harley, and uh, he came to us, and uh, so uh, you know, he said, "Let's, you know, we need to do an open house." You know, we got involved, I got a poster out in the shop out there that the Indian Riders Group, the National Old Riders Group, had sent us a poster to celebrate us opening up. It was world's fastest Indian movie poster that they had written some stuff on the back of it, and, you know, wishing us well and everything. So, so we knew there was interest out there. So we figured we'll have an open house and get some, some things going, you know. So he said, what do you think? And I said, no, you know. I said, I said, we used to do open houses there at York for Harley. I mean, you know, 10, 20,000 people show up over a weekend. I said, but this is us. I said, you know, what do you think? Maybe 12, 1,500 people, maybe. Well, it turns out that day we had the North Carolina State Patrol beating a path to our door to come in and complain about the traffic that was on Interstate 85 because we were backing up traffic on the off-ramp by the plant. I forget what the final count was. Well over 5,000 people came through the place. Fantastic. And it was just phenomenal. It was such a, uh, one of the, it was almost a tearjerker for me. We had a fellow come in, his daughter brought him in, wheelchair, and I took him around personally. It was just so much fun. But he was an old Indian owner from back in the 30s and 40s. You know, obviously an elderly person, you know, couldn't, couldn't hardly get around, could hardly hear. Yeah, I remember that. But, uh, you know, we, I took them around and was showing them all the processes and everything, showed them around the building and stuff. And uh, we finally got them out, you know. She came up and gave me a hug and she, she was she was crying. She goes, she's, she's, I can't thank you enough. You don't know what this means to him. He misses that stuff of his life so much. And I said, we, we saw, you know, they were local, which was kind of neat. So I said, when we saw that you were doing this, we knew we had to get dad down here and stuff. So those kind of things come to play, and I mm -hmm. said that's always, you know, you know what it is. It's yeah. more the people than than anything when you get involved. So you basically stayed in 2010 by 11. You guys ended up building close to 800 motorcycles. Yeah, somewhere right? around 800. I think Which is a phenomenal number. achievement for, for a hand-built motorcycle on a small production line in Kings yeah. Mountain, North Carolina. Yeah, and considering when we were trying to do it too, the economy wasn't the world's greatest, yeah. you know, back in those days as well. So. And then, of course, you know, history is as it is, right? Polaris came along and said, we want to buy that. And, of course, a lot of people now know the Indian name. They're very yeah. successful now since Polaris. Yeah, and great happened, folks, like say, you know, they, they've done what we had envisioned what we, where we wanted it to go, you know. Uh, almost from day one, we had, we had started making plans and doing, you know, discussions about a scout model and stuff like that, which, of course, Polaris, you know, fairly quickly or brought on board as well. Uh, so, you know, great team up there. Can't can't really say anything bad about Polaris. I mean, they're, they're, they speak for themselves, really. But uh, it's kind of neat to see that, that uh, to be part of that legacy, you know, mm -hmm. to know that the legacy is in fairly good hands. Well, and you, you're an intrinsic part of Indian's history. I mean, you, mm -hmm. there's these Original Indian, Gilroy, Kings Mountain, now Spirit Lake. I mean, and you, you were that transition team. Yep. Yeah, and that's, you know, like I say, whenever it all came down, I mean, we were all, I don't know if we were blindsided, but we were all kind of taken aback whenever it became a purchase, a buyout, as, as opposed to a, a you know, financial mm. partnership. 
but you know and that's that's what we kind of reminded each other of you know that that Polaris would have nothing to do with it if it wasn't for us you know right, we, no we, the, we kept the brand going we got it back to where you know it was, something, it was something that Harley was was having to look at maybe not be overly concerned with what we were doing but the potential was there mm. and I think Polaris realized that potential and you know the brand the brand is what it's all about anyway I mean I mean, obviously, they started Victory, and, and Victory went by the wayside. It just didn't have that history that that, that brought you know the public to the door, uh, where Indian has that. And we you know we we recreated a vision uh, of the legacy that was there. You know, the look was there, the sound was there, and uh, and I think they realized the value of that that icon, that the legacy that was there. So if we hadn't have done that, who knows? Indian may have totally just went belly up and never be even be so right because yeah there was nothing to build on you guys right. put the fat the, the building blocks in yeah. place and it was it was kind of interesting because they basically the first year they had it they just basically took what we had in king's mountain and recreated you know to get the thing to the continuity there before they went you know and did what they did which is phenomenal to my mind what they they mm. they did what we had hoped to do in king's mountain yeah, yeah, but like you said, without you being that, and it was fun. Yeah, you know, it's kind of fun to, to to see. You know, Harley. You know, I'm, I'm watching the flat track stuff anymore, and you know, it's back to the old days. You know, I'm yeah. a big historian when it comes to motorsports, and it's it's like the wrecking crew days are here again. You know, and last few seasons with flat track, it's kind of fun to watch and everything. You know, and we we weren't above it. I mean, we all know each other, and we we talk you and I about how small this this you know this little community is sometimes mm -hmm. i can remember one of the first years uh harley was doing their uh, their dealer meeting in denver and they had taken the big coliseum down in the south end of denver there or you know they, harley never did anything small small potatoes anyway so this was a big deal you know it was always a couple day meeting and stuff and, and uh, so it just so happened you know we had our you know, we had finally pulled together and we had put together a nice little semi, you know, truck to take out and do demos around, you know, the events and the dealers and stuff. Just so happened that, you know, hey, look at our schedule for the truck. And so we did uh, one of the, uh, they did some digging and checked with the city of Denver. And of course, across from the Coliseum is a big parking lot, city owned. It's all city owned property and stuff. And of course, we knew. Harley had the, the Coliseum, you know, reserved for three or four days, whatever they had. But they had no claim to the parking lot. So we put in a for a permit and we parked our demo truck right across the street from the main <laughs> entrance to the dealer meeting that Harley was doing. And uh, so all these dealers, of course, are going in and they're coming there. Hey, there's Indian. What? We're hearing about this, you know. And so dealers started coming over and of course you know they were wondering hey can we get a dealer you know it's all this stuff well it was funny because uh jim mccaslin by then was the ceo of harley but jim had been the director when i was at uh, york he was the manufacturing for the plant down there and one of his stepping stones in his career and so we all knew jim at least those of us from york and of course the guys you know chris and some of the other guys from india and all worked with them and stuff there in milwaukee and uh, so it was like he finally, I think it was the second day, he come across the street and he had, <laughs> he said, if nothing else, he said, I got to give it to you guys. You definitely got a big set on you. And so it was great. You know, we kind of just 
put that little knife and twisted it just a little bit, you know. That's kind of fun stuff we had, you know. But it did get serious. I mean, uh, there was at one point they were they came back to the to uh, the Stelican guys, Stephen and Stephen, and with a letter saying, "Hey, that's it. You, you've gotten enough talent." They were getting concerned because we had a hell of a team there at, at Indian, and most, like say, a good portion of it was. Some of the better better people coming out of Harley, you know. So, and some of them went back too. You know, it was funny. And some of them actually were from Polaris. We had uh, a couple folks like in our R and D and stuff were actually started with Polaris and then came to Indian and then they went back to they Polaris back, in yeah. a roundabout way. So, yeah. So, but it's a small community and we have a lot of fun with it. So, well, yeah. So you didn't relocate. Obviously, we're, we're sitting here in Chesney, South Carolina. Um, mm -hmm. When you left Indian, you left the motorcycle industry for employment, but you haven't left motorcycling. And now, of course, you're, you have retired in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And you've continued to add to your motorcycle collection. You've restored now an original XL250, but you've been sort of keeping busy on project bikes, cafe mm -hmm. races. Is, some yeah. of you taking the shows, keeping yourself busy. Yeah, I mean, just you know, you know, we kind of reconnected, you know, at an open house from 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 a new entity that's coming in, and and so try to stay tuned into what's what's out there, mm -hmm. you know, as far as you know, in the area, and and it seems like here for some reason we're becoming the motorcycle suspension capital here close by, so we it's kind of fun, but uh, uh, yeah, doing doing what I always like to do but now doing it on my terms you know i'm not having to worry about building so many to make a dollar and 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 doing you know things that, that kind of catch my eye and just uh, biggest part of it you know just stuff shows up or comes across my plate that says eh, why not what the heck you know it's like i'm working on that little honda dream right now i would never thought i would have worked on a 60 year old motorcycle but it's been a great history lesson and uh, you know it's something that that the uh, I can relate to kind of because my, my my older brother had old Honda like something similar to that at some point and, and it's kind of the stepping stone to the one project bike my cafe racer that I did in the 450 so you know they kind of just you know that all plays off so and uh, but yeah just uh, involved a lot of shows you know still doing a lot of shows and stuff with these things do you uh, take bikes to the shows or do you just mm -hmm. go to yeah yeah, because I think I, it's uh, I, I think it's interesting. You still have your VF seven fifty. Yep. You still have well, you have you've redone a beautiful restoration, by the way, on an XL two fifty to match the one you had when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, you still got your RD four hundred race bike. You still got your SV six fifty track slash race bike. You still have the eight fifty one. Um, you also have a an original ninety seven T five nine five Triumph Daytona, mm -hmm. um, which uh, is an interesting part of your eclectic collection. You've got an ST4 for touring, I'm assuming for you and Jeanette. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, I think the the one that stands out, I think the, is your Cafe Racer project with the 450. Mm -hmm. um, that's a beautiful build. I mean, yeah, we, the, we, could, we could disseminate every one of your bikes because I mean, I know that we don't have uh, video or pictures for people to see, but I mean, these bikes are absolutely immaculate. And the 450 yeah. was, is, I think, my favorite in there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's done very well, you know, in shows and stuff. Uh, 
unfortunately, last year it was uh, selected to be part of the hand-built show that's down in Austin, Texas every year when MotoGP's there. Unfortunately, I didn't have the ability to get it there in time. So, but uh, it, it's 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 one that was done. Uh, that was definitely a, a labor of passion. You know, I've, uh, I I love the the look of the old uh, twin cam 450. I just think that that casting and stuff. So the engine always appealed to me, and I always, you know, over the years, you know, it was you know, just something stern in the back, you know. And uh, my son and I had gone down to the barber swap meet. You know, this is several years ago now, with the intent of finding a project, you know. And I'd actually looked at a CX500, the old Traverse V-twin things that were. I thought, oh, that might be interesting, and, and, and I actually found a guy that had two of them that maybe one good one could have come out, and, he, and I walked around, and so it didn't really bite on anything, and it hadn't seen this bike until uh, Sunday morning. So we went back through before we left to come home and uh, come across this 450, and the doggone thing was straight. The, the paint on it was faded and kind of rough. I mean, it was a 71 model. I mean, it was old, but it was straight. The tank was in good shape. No dents, no dings. I mean, everything. So, and I, I got browbeat when I came home because I made a deal and purchased it without a title, which that's one thing that, uh, since Jeanette handles a lot of the paperwork and stuff on these projects and everything, I, I never buy a bike without a title. So. But I did, you know, because apparently the thing was sold in, it's actually from Georgia. And uh, so back in the day, you could buy and sell bikes just on bill of sale. So I had a friend, a neighbor here, we did a, he's a, a deputy sheriff, uh, one of the leadership of the department. And so he did a quick VIN check, said the bike's clean, you're fine, no problem. And, so we ended up, you know, through South Carolina DMV, we were able to get a title and do all that with all the, you know, actually, literally, they have guys that come out and check the VIN and the stamping and all that. It's a, it's a pain. And so she rightfully is, it was upset when I come home without it. But we, we, I walked around that thing probably for six weeks and I kept looking at it. I thought, dang, that thing is so straight and so good that I could do an easy true restoration on a thing, but that's not what I wanted. I want to build a cafe racer, you know. So uh, I finally bit the bullet and I just started stripping it down and, you know, stripped stuff off the frame and remodified the frame and, you know, all the stuff you saw done on it and everything and and uh, found the bodywork and stuff, the fiberglass tank and tailpiece and everything and, and just started, you know, kind of had an idea what I wanted and, you know, kind of had, you know, I'm sure Jeanette, she's the artist of the family, but you know, I had a vision, but I had, I, my vision was written out. This is what I want, you know, I had a list, bullet point, you know, this is what's gonna happen, you know. And so kind of put it together. And, and uh, so it's been pretty successful. We have a, uh, an interesting show every year up here in Hendersonville, North Carolina, that's uh, it's called The Meltdown, they do every spring. And it's primarily, it's put on by the Ton Up Club up there in Western North Carolina. and it, there's a, obviously a bunch of British kind of cafe racer kind of guys. But the, the tone of the, of the show, they do it uh, in conjunction with one of the breweries there in Hendersonville. And so they closed the street off and they would, you know, old bikes, uh, 
very, very few, if any, Harley stuff, you know, that kind of thing. So it's primarily old, primarily European and Japanese bikes, a lot of customs, a lot of race-oriented kind of stuff. So it's a fun show for guys like me and stuff. So the first year we took that up there, it, uh, it won one of the, I think, five or six trophies that they give out for the classes. So I was pretty, pretty pleased with that because I figure these guys kind of know that genre of bikes and so they appreciated it so that was kind of a, a nice feather in the cap for that bike but it's done uh, it's been around you know this area several shows that we do around here and a lot of the car shows include bikes and stuff for ch you know some of the churches and stuff do their own shows so uh, one we go to I take something to every year it's fun for me too because it's out here at a career center part of our uh, school system so it's more like a Votech kind of school where they teach motor, you know, auto mechanics and body and carpentry and all that stuff. But they always put on, it's, it's fun because it's always like the first show of the season. It's always early in the spring. It's right around my birthday. So I get to go out and, and have a good time there. So we've done well out there with some of the bikes as well. But those are the kind of things that I've been involved with trying to just get stuff back out. Uh, that show is fun just because there's a lot of young people being part of the school and stuff, and so get to talk with folks and stuff like that. And then, then we do another show in the fall down in Piedmont, South Carolina. Uh, that's called the Gas Show. It's Greenville, uh, Anderson, and Spartanburg, GAS. But it's again some some Brit bike guys put on, so they do kind of the same thing that they do down there, and uh, it's an interesting little kind of restaurant and brew pub that puts that their parking lot stuff and it's a great place I knew I was in the right place when you walk into the restaurant and the desk that's there with their cash register and stuff is actually a glass cabinet with a I believe it's a matchless inside it so I figured, yeah this guy gets it you know so. but it's a fun show and we we've had fun taking stuff down there too so take you know and, and uh we had a young man came down. I had the the XL. It was the first show that I put the XL in last year. And he came up. And I don't think he was, he might have been 17, 18 at the oldest. And he was just all over that thing. Oh, this is, what year is it? And he was just going on and on about it. And it was fun for me because to see a kid that age. Who's younger than doing, the body. <laughs> yeah. It, it was the same age that I was when I bought mine new back in the day. You yeah. know, he was all about it. And, and turns out him and his dad are working on, he's got an old motocross bike that he's putting back together to go, you know, he's going to start racing, you know, as you know, just like I did, you know, out on the state of the art stuff, you're just going to race what you got and have fun, you know, so it's kind of neat to see that. Sort of full circle from the XL back to the XL. Yeah, kind of. Well, Wes, it's been really awesome, uh, A, reconnecting, seeing you again, um, really enjoyed coming to see the collection today. And yeah fascinating life and uh, history of motorcycles that is going on at full steam ahead out in the garage there. <laughs> <laughs> Always looking for projects, you know, so whatever comes yeah. across the plate. You better be careful. This is the internet. <laughs> <laughs> you might have a few trucks showing up at the door. Right? Well, Wes, thank you kindly, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Sure. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate the interest.